All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today, I am chatting with someone that I should have had on for a really long time, and I wanted to have him on for a really long time, but uh, I just never got around it, and there were just a lot of potential stuff that I felt like I could have talked about with this person. And lately, I've been just binge listening to a lot of podcasts that he has done. And finally, an actual podcast episode started to formulate in my head that I felt like, damn it, I could do this episode <laughs> with this guy. And so I uh, took the courage, reached out to him, and he was kind enough to agree. So I'm chatting with Dr. Scott Stevenson, who is a scientist, bodybuilder, and just overall great thinker about training, nutrition, and lots of other topics. So Scott, thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely, Abel. Um, it's funny because I... I sometimes I consider myself kind of a, a bit of a podcast whore, <laughs> and I think you you first contacted me after I had I had a week where I did four podcasts, I'm almost literally one every day, and that's probably nothing, you know. I, I know there are people who are in much higher demand, but I literally uh, I, I, I'm careful of saying this, but I literally say yes to almost every podcast because it's, it's a chance mm. to reach out and maybe you know influence if it's just one person, you know. That, that here's something that I say <clears throat> that gets a, um, a light bulb to go off or makes a positive change in their life and their training, whatever it may be, then it's absolutely worth it. So, but yeah, you caught me after a string. There, there was, it was, it was, I think I had maybe five or six podcasts that were all sort of new all at once because some had taken some time to come out and then mine came out and three of the ones that I'd done in the span of a week came out. So it seemed almost like, how can this guy be doing this? But, um, that's probably what, what uh, I, I probably fed your binge a little bit during that week. Yeah, yeah. And and part of the challenge for me was that, um, you know, a lot of people, it's very easy to kind of pin them down to one particular topic. And it's like, well, I haven't done a podcast episode about that. It's kind of a, a straightforward decision to reach out to that person to, okay, like, this could be a, a good way to address that topic. But I've heard you talk about so many different topics on different podcasts that I couldn't really decide like what would be the best thing to actually chat about and um, I don't want to ask you like just introduce yourself to people because probably 99% of my audience will know who you are so it's kind of like maybe I should introduce myself before you kind of thing let's just start with where you are uh, in terms of what's going on in your life I heard you competed recently and you've just been through some rough dieting times so how are you doing on that front actually it's funny uh, they I don't, I'm not sure who told you they were rough they haven't haven't been that bad um dieting is is pretty easy for me I mean I've been I've been at this for a while I, I'm coming up on I mean if you round it up I'm at almost four decades of training in the gym and I'm competing for well over two <clears throat> so it's very easy for me to get into a, a groove so um, I wasn't planning on competing but the circumstances sort of lent themselves to doing so so I I had to do a warm-up show and I did I did, I did two national level shows. And for me, these are, I mean, I know, I know my limits. I learned many years ago that, you know, I'm not, and a lot of this came actually from training with, with Dave Henry. I have to be pro Dave Henry. We were training partners for the better part of a decade. So I, I gained some good perspective on what my genetic abilities are. Um, literally having coached Dave and trained with Dave and seen like, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, Dave's out working me or out eating me or what have you. There's just certain certain things that, that put a, a limitation on how good we can be. But so I've always viewed competitions um, as sort of a sort of the end point of an experiment or the end point of, of a learning process for me that 
is basically most, most valuable because of the actual journey per se, rather than the destination. So I had a chance to compete. So I just, I, uh, I, I started sort of playing around. I got down into the legitimate stage level body fat percentages and, um, uh, just, just kind of stuck with it. I, I messed around with my peak week protocol. I've got, um, my latest book, sort of my, my master brain dump thus far is it's called be your own bodybuilding coach. And I've got a, uh, oh, it's about 15 page section in there on how I've constructed peak week, sort of in a basic sequential way for people to, if they even need to do one to do that without pharmaceutical diuretics, it's based on physiological science of water manipulation, electrolytes, et cetera, et cetera. So, but there's various ways you can kind of come at that. And I have that in the book and I just tried out some different things. So that was like one aspect of the, the self-experimentation that I did. And I was dieting down. And um, one of the things I don't do, um, people want to sometimes kick me when I say this, is I really don't do formal cardio. Um, <clears throat> I did it many, many years ago. It just withered up my legs. Whenever I've kind of done that, I've noticed that's the case. I walk my dogs a couple times. Um, so that's sort of my cardio, but you really would, we're not talking of any exertion whatsoever. Um, but what I do is I keep myself very busy with projects. I've had a bunch of projects that have um, kept me busy. And literally we're talking, we're talking about the kind of thing that um, probably most people wouldn't want to do. Like recently I put a, uh, I installed a ranch hand bumper on the front of my 9F350. It's an old beater truck and that's like a 200, 250 pound bumper. And so you can imagine, you, I get into there under my creeper, with my creeper, and I'm underneath, and I'm trying to wrench off these 20-year-old screws, um, and I got rust falling in my eyes, and I'm, you know, I'm out in the Florida sun. This is not easy work. It's fun. It's enjoyable for me. Completely, I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about eating. I'm not sitting there, like, you know, counting the minutes to my next meal. It's very, very easy for me, at least. This is the, what I found to... To pick enjoyable projects like this to sort of engage my creativity. It's like, okay, how am I gonna, I'm gonna get these screws off here, and this is not gonna work because that part of the of the truck is rusted out. So I'm gonna have to figure out another way to attach this that's gonna give it the um, you know the mechanical integrity it needs as a bumper, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got um, in an intellectual task keeps me occupied that also expends a lot of energy. So. With the things that I'm doing here at home, I've, I've got a truck camper I'm putting on the on the F-350. I've had a million and one things that have literally made that energy expenditure side of the pre-contest equation um, a no-brainer. Actually, kind of the opposite. It's engaged my brain so much, it's made it very, very easy to do. So um, at one point, I'm like, you know what? This is actually going so well. And I think I, I, I did post this on Instagram a few weeks ago. I, I, I got down to... I figured what would happen, I wondered if I could actually make it down to the weight limit for classic here in the amateur ranks in the States, DC. And because I normally would compete, normally weigh in, depending on when the weigh-in caught me in terms of dropping water, et cetera, but somewhere around 215, and I'm 5'8", so that's, you know, middle of the heavyweight range. And at 5'8", it's either 185 or 190 is the weight I have to weigh. And that's in, you know, that's in good condition. I don't, I mean, I get on shape, get on stage in decent shape and I'm thinking there's no way I can possibly make it there. I've seen, uh, but I've always seen some of these, some of the physique pros, they're just, they, they look like they literally defy gravity in some way. It's just they've got hollow bones or something that allows them to make weight. So I just, I just stuck with this, uh, you know, my, my diet and kept on trying to bring myself down. I got to about 207 and 
it was just, I was just, there's just nothing there. I mean, literally, I, I could not move. And I'm like, I, if I tried to drop 17 pounds or 18 pounds, whatever it might have been, it would have not looked very good on stage. I could drop some, you can always drop some water and then fill back up, but it would have been just um, literally dropping seven or eight of muscle for the sake of just making that weight class. And it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been. So I got to test that. I, this is what I like to do when I, as a bodybuilder, sort of as I tinker, and this adds to my knowledge base that I can books, is I, I sort of like, I, 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 I test out the terrain, the territory. And that was an, a way that I had never gone before. I mean, bodybuilding is about getting as gigantically, massively muscular as possible, right? You want to be just this walking human eclipse with 0% body fat, veins everywhere. And, <clears throat> but it's also very cool to be very, 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 just really, really, really lean. Um, but if you don't have the structure uh, at some point in time, you end up looking stringy, of course. So that's kind of where I was going. But I tested it out. That's someplace I'd never been. That's someplace I didn't think I would go. So I'm like, well, guess what? I haven't gone down that road. I'm going to give it a shot. So I got to do that. And that was just like, it was really kind of kind of cool and fun for me to, to, to find, like, that's kind of a big avenue. Like, that's a lot of people do that. They try to, you know, the diet down to try to fit the one of the newer divisions to get their pro card or what have you. And none of that really matters. To but it was really kind of cool and exciting to say, okay, I'm going to give this like give this a go. So you know, for about six weeks or so, I just kept on kind of pushing, and um, I realized that you know, that, okay, I, I can, I'm not I'm not at that weight limit, but to get there, um, like there's a pit of molten lava, and the you know, my legs, I would be legless by the time I got there, and I need my legs at the end point there, you know. So um, so that was what I why I ended up competing so much was just sort of I was in in contest shape, and I also I also wanted to get a national qualification. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't placing high enough. It was kind of a, there's bodybuilding is, is not highly populated in the local shows here. So I had to do a couple shows before I could place top two. It's kind of, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre scenario. That's a whole other topic, but so I just did a couple of local shows. I got to meet some local guys, which I wouldn't have otherwise. So it was, uh, yeah, no, I, that, that's really cool that, uh, you, were able to frame a dieting process to very lean levels as a form of experimentation and something that was actually fulfilling and you didn't let that whole process kind of eat into your life and make everything else miserable, which I guess what ends up happening to a lot of people. So I guess more power to you in that case. Yeah, Yeah, it's, well, I mean, the thing is obviously, this has kind of become trite to say this, but we, we choose to do this to ourselves. It's, I mean, this is a, you know, these are, not not being able to eat carbs because you're dieting for a bodybuilding show is an absolute first world issue. Like it's not like you could always like. There's plenty of carbs. It's not like you ha you're being forced into this because you live in abject poverty or or what have you. You're homeless or something like that. It's this is a total choice. So you know, of course, sometimes it's like okay, I'm pretty hungry right now. I you know I got done and I calm down and I'm back in the air conditioning. I'm like I could eat. I really could eat some food now. But I just you know. I realized that, hey, I want to see what happens here. So it's always been my choice. And um, and I've got to, you know, I've accumulated some strategies, you know, of course, to psychological strategies like that, like literally having, being mindful of the greater picture. It's very, very important. Literally reflecting back and saying, I am really friggin', I mean, how how tough is this? Literally, I've, I've come in from outside. I'm, I'm, I'm working on um, getting a truck and a camper up so that I can take a kind of a road trip. I'm going to do some seminars, ideally, once I finally get the, the contraption where it's where it's safe to travel in and you know i'm out in the heat it's hot it's sweaty and i'm choosing not i mean this is just this is absolutely 
this is like a fantasy world for many people and the vast majority of human beings in the course of human history so far who've you know many of whom have had to struggle just to stay alive you know living beyond the age of 30 was a luxury just a couple centuries ago so this is awesome like i got no room to complain so and i've also got all the things available to me i can use like you know um artificial sweetened drinks, you know, like low calorie drinks, crystal light types things, drink lots of water, plenty of fruits and vegetables around, high fiber. There's all sorts of things that I can do to to sort of uh, tease that hunger away. Um, I have three dogs, you know, I can afford to have three dogs. There's just, there's just absolutely no reason. This is, of course, this didn't, you know, come into my head the very first time I dieted many years ago. It was, I had a different perspective, but even then, um, it's like this is this is kind of cool. This is let's see what happens here. Let's see what my body can do. Let's let's tinker. So that's that's really fun for me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's uh, good to put things into perspective every once in a while. I mean, I've gotten leaner than I've ever been before. I mean, it's nothing compared to probably the condition that you've gotten down to, but you know, it's all relative to where you are in the all moment. Relative, yep. And every every once in a while, I uh, had to kind of have this self talk with myself that well. I'm on low calories and I'm hitting the gym and I'm keeping my physical activity up consciously, but, and, and it's getting tough, but man, like imagine in like a concentration camp or something where people had to work for like literally mm -hmm. all day long in the cold with no clothes, with like guns at their heads. They were like at very close to death in terms of how skinny they were. I mean, compared to that, it's still nothing. Right. Have you read um, Victor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning? No, not yet. I know it's a must-read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically that, that, that points to everything, like literally the example that you gave, being in a concentration camp and how that, how that basically brought, brought up about within him um, the perspective that he shares in the book about what the new life is. So, yeah, that's a definite reader for pretty much everybody. Cool. So, um that was a short or not so short preamble <laughs> and you know a couple of months ago i was literally like every other video on my youtube channel and on my podcast every other episode was about training volume and the high volume studies of brett schoenfeld and and this and that and mm. i've gotten so sick of that topic that literally whenever someone even brings that study up or that whole volume topic up or asks me about my training split and how many sets i do i'm just <laughs> like man just please leave me the hell alone like i, I don't want to think about it and <laughs> I, I pretty much um throw that whole topic into the category of topics that i would frame as uh, mental masturbation uh, topics, but I thought that if if there is a person that I would be willing to engage in that mental masturbation with for one last time, that would be you. <laughs> You're saying I'm basically your your favorite porn star in this in the master mental masturbation arena of high high volume training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can we can do that, man. And, and first of all, like, um, just to stay on the theme of mental masturbation and whether it is actually mental masturbation or is just my kind of perception. Um, I've heard a recent giant podcast that you guys did with, um, my gosh, I'm blanking on his name, Brendan Carter. Paul. Um, yeah. Is Paul Carter. He, Paul Carter. Yeah. Excuse me. So, and, um, a question was addressed to both of you guys that why do you think it is that the natural training crowd 
is so fond of obsessing over so many details and so many minute stuff that might not even make that much of a difference. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. should I be doing 18 sets a week per muscle group or should I be doing 15 or 21? And um, you had a really cool response to that. But um, I, I want to ask that same question of you on this podcast again, because I'm curious, maybe you've been thinking about it since then or whether you're going to give the same response. So why do you think that is? It, it's funny I, that that we recorded that podcast um, maybe a couple months ago. I don't even remember being asked the question, but um, I also you, you've got me in a perfect position because I'm I'm essentially regenerating a response um, from a blank slate. Uh, I, I think that obviously gains come much more slowly to natural trainees, so they it's not it's 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 not an easy task to get to the point where. From, from many, maybe even the average person who puts a lot in. And even if you look at some of the, the best natural pros, if they're in street clothes when they're dieted down, um, unless you happen to notice the vascularity in their forearms or what have you, you might not even know that they lift. Um, and that's not in any way a put down to natural competitors, just the amount of muscle mass that can be obtained naturally, um, in many cases, not everyone, um, without uh, or so that it shows in an average everyday way um, is so much less for most people when they're when they're not training enhanced that that there's a just natural human proclivity to try to focus on dotting every I and crossing every T to make sure you can you can figure out everything um, so because it just doesn't come that easy so I think that's probably a large part of it um, and I mean there's probably a different personality type too. Is this what I said before? I have really have no idea. Uh similar, similar, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think there's a different personality type as well that comes along with a nat being a natural trainee and that um they're maybe a little bit more conservative, possibly. Um, you know, someone who is just, you know, goes at uh, life with reckless abandon. You can think back to maybe friends that you went to school with years ago or people that you know now that they just they just go for it. They they don't they're they're altering their state of consciousness is um, just part of day day to day life. Be it with drugs or some sort of extreme behavior, it's part of a normal um, natural the natural human mind. There's a um, alternative sort of holistic medical practitioner known, named Andrew Weil. He's pretty well known in the alternative medicine world. He's an MD, but he. Uh, uh, he was involved with psychedelics many, many years ago, and he wrote a book called The Natural Mind. And he, the basic posit thing that he posits in the book is that it's natural and normal to want to change our state of consciousness. Um, kids, you know, spin around in chairs when they're young and, and you know, do daredevil types of things, and people jump out of airplanes and want to drive their cars really quickly. And, you know, drug use in some way, shape, or form is basically part of every culture known to man historically. So some people tend to do that more so than others. So if you think of um, sort of a spectrum of just like going in and going for broke and just being like an animal and just not caring about pain, not caring if you're bleeding, not to say that there aren't natural trainees who train this way as well. I've seen them, I've trained with some of them and um, there's some absolute mm -hmm. freaking badasses who don't, who aren't geared up. Um, Doug Miller is one guy for him. You look, watch that guy deadlift, pull up. I think he's got a 30 rep deadlift set on YouTube. It's just like mind boggling. He's a, he's a machine. So, but generally speaking, there's probably sort of a, you could probably differentiate, um, some psychometrically the mentality that, that folks have. So you're going to have people who are like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's not, that's not something that it's just like a little too extreme. There's too many unknowns. I want to capture 
things that I can know and I'm going to focus on those things. So those people will tend to be more micromanaging of the factors that they know that they can control. It's, I mean, when you have reams and reams of research that you can read through every night and yeah. dig into, um, that sort of uh, propels that perspective that there's some sort of an answer. There's so much out there. As you know, this is all about the mental masturbation that, you know, if, if you, if you, you can get kind of addicted to it, kind of like you could to addict to internet porn. You know, literally you start thinking like this, there's got to be something to this. There's just so much material here um, that there must be an answer there. Um, and I just, just a matter of finding it. And that's, I mean, so much of the fitness industry as well, this goes for trained or geared up or, or natural competitors is about um, magic bullets. It's absolutely amazing to me that, 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 that sort of uh, take on selling stuff through ads where like this is the next thing that'll just turn you into Ronnie Coleman still works. It's, it's literally, it still attracts people. And I think this has always been my hypothesis is that <clears throat> we're, we're, we're tend to be gullible in many ways, but when it comes to something that is so central to our ego, our body and our body image, which you walk into any room and, and I've talked to bodybuilders who like literally this is really almost why they bodybuild. Like they, they've almost pointed out this. They love to walk in a room and get attention because they, they look, they look, they're gigantic. They look unusual. Um, so your body image and your ego and literally your sense of self for many, many people is, especially in Western culture, is very, very wrapped up in, um, in the physique and your body image. So bodybuilders are the extreme of that. So if you give them information or you give them a, you know, sell them, try to sell them a supplement or you give them um, information related to training or whatever that, that, uh, um, that might perhaps have an uncovered hidden treasure in there somewhere in terms mm -hmm. of the right kind of right amount of volume, like that sweet spot where all of a sudden the gains just sort of take off. Um, then people will search for that. That's, I mean, there are treasure hunters. I don't have a TV, but I know there's there have been shows of people like that are treasure hunters, and literally they those they'll spend years like looking for treasure, thinking they're going to hit the jackpot, and that's what gambling is about. You gamble and gamble, and gamble. Like people go into the um, in the casinos, and they know that that the stack is the house is stacked against them. Like the the house, obviously the casino wouldn't be there if they continue to lose money to to the people who yeah. who are the customers of the casino. But you, the people still go in there knowing it's a losing proposition. So there's so many, I mean, you could go on and on and on, but there's so many aspects of human nature and combine that with the fact that you've probably got a different psychology in the natural trainees and you've got a, and it's related to their body. And um, natural trainees aren't as large on average as those who are geared up, obviously. There's an effect there. So it, it, all those things can kind of focus um, that, that tendency to want to micromanage various aspects of the bodybuilding equation the formula and the training volume is a huge one i mean brad schoenfeld's doing wonderful stuff he's so it's really pretty cool i think to have <clears throat> someone like brad who is a researcher he's a, i believe he's full professor now he's he's legit he's the real deal and he's also really well known um among kind of your average person in the bodybuilding world if they you know if they pay attention whatsoever to anything on the science side of things they know who brad is that's awesome so when brad's doing a volume study like that um, people are going to just take that and, you know, we tend to idolize and they see the information that comes out of that, which we idolize and we simplify both. And like you say, okay, this must be it. Like, you know, God, the God of hypertrophy has spoken. 
and, I, and I'm not in any way like Brad. If, I, don't, I doubt he'll listen to this, but Brad, Brad knows I'm not. I'm not picking on him whatsoever. He, I, I'm sure he senses this all the time in the messages and the way that you know people interact with him. That they want to take what he has to say and and use use it too much. And he was actually on um, a podcast that Paul and, and Alan Aragon and I had for a little while. And one of the things about that volume study, which you, you may have heard this, I don't know if you've. If if this topic no, came no, up, actually, sorry to interrupt, but do do you have do you have a podcast yourself? Because I was trying to find it. Um, oh, but, we have uh, Muscle Minds. Yeah, I've. Oh, your Muscle. Minds. I have my own. Yeah, that's my my own podcast. Oh gosh. Oh, <laughs> here comes the binging. Yeah. Oh goddamn. Um, <laughs> yeah, the other one is called the Swolly Trinity, and that's um, that one is no more. But these are all on the Think Big podcast network. It used to be Advices Radio, so you can oh, find great. it either way. But yeah, I think I've got like seventy some episodes. Oh, that's amazing! Oh, um, been doing it for yeah for a few years. And my schedule is full for the next week. Then <laughs> <laughs> you got cardio material for the rest of the year easily. Yeah. Um, anyway, one of the things we, we we dug into that study. One of the things that Brad said, and and this is kind of difficult to grasp to some degree um, if you if you haven't really dug into and thought about the science a lot, is that the, the nature of that volume study, as Brad explained it, and I don't mean to speak for him, and hopefully I'm, I'm explaining this the way that he would approve of, but was not to create practical recommendations in terms of training volume per se, but rather to explore that upper end of training volume um, where there is little literature examining the, the sort of dose response of training volume and hypertrophy, so that's why he did. They, they did that study. It's like okay, they've got. There was an old meta-analysis um, and a review as well, I think, and they developed this idea of the dose response of training volume. And beyond like nine sets or ten sets, they didn't really have enough studies to create um, a meaningful conclusions as far as what um, what a, what effect it would have on muscle growth to do more sets than that. They gave an effect size, and there was an effect, but Literally, there's kind of a, a, if you look at the sort of the span of the studies, the higher volume ranges, there's the paucity of evidence. So he just wanted to explore that, not say this is what everyone should do. So that was, it was more of a, almost like a basic research question rather than a practical applied research question. And almost all the studies, I mean, literally you don't see research studies um, with resistance training that really are, there's, there's, there's never going to be a perfect one. But you, you typically, obviously, you see the untrained individuals, and there's obviously issues there because they're so sensitive to the stimuli of muscle growth, and almost anything will get muscles, the muscle to grow. There's, there are old studies from yeah. the 50s and 60s. You can get good, you can put on fat-free mass just from running if you're an untrained person. Just jogging classes with college students will put on fat-free mass. So just about anything will do it. Um, so, but the studies aren't optimizing other aspects of the training intentionally. Um, because they're trying to like just isolate one variable, and if you if they tend to try to optimize everything all at once, um, then they, they lose the power of changing that one variable in a way that could you know seem seem just sort of simple and idiotic. But they definitely don't want they definitely want to do that because it doesn't help them answer the research questions that they have. So uh, it's interesting for me why it's such a sexy topic training volume because there or even in the natural realm there or 
a lot of potentially more interesting topics or sexy topics like supplements, but I think the evidence-based crowd largely understands that most supplements just won't do magic or none of them will do magic. Creatine and caffeine coming the closest, but even that, those are kind of meh in their effects. Um, so I think that the reason why the topic of training volume is so sexy is because that is one realm where I think people feel like they have a direct control over what happens with their progress. Like if someone just tells you, look, just uh, put weight on the bar over time and over a couple of years, you know, put 20 to 50% extra weight on your 10RM on the bench press. It's like, yeah, well, that sounds good, but man, like that's going to take me months and years. But doing another set or an another couple of sets, that's something I can do instantly. It's just like, oh, so that's the secret. I should just do 20 sets instead of 12, and I can make substantially faster gains. Like, let's do that tomorrow. Um, do you think that's what's going on there? Hey, guys, just a second. Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, I'd really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast on iTunes. That will help me to grow this podcast, rank higher on the platform, and get more high-quality guests over time, which is a win-win for everybody. So if you could do this little bit of favor for me, I'll owe you one. Thanks a lot, guys, and let's continue. Oh, there's so much there. That's it. You may have, you may, you're, you're opening the can, each can of worms you open is bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, a absolutely. So there's, there, God, there's so much there. Um, that what you said actually applies to the reason for examining volume in the scientific perspective. And, and I've addressed this before, and I've heard it addressed a couple of times by some other people who, um, who, uh, who are well known for talking on this topic. And it's a, it's very, very important to recognize that, um, what happens in many of these studies is that it's just sort of a claim in the method sections, and it's kind of hard to know because I, I really, I've never seen any video documentation of, of to what extent this is really the truth, and it's, it is a subjective thing that the sets are taken to failure. So basically, then you have a singular unit of a set taken to failure that you can manipulate quantitatively as an independent variable in the studies. Five sets, 10 sets, 15, 20, 30, 45, whatever it may be. So that's so much easier to manipulate as a variable and, and deal with statistically. And you don't have to consider the psychology. And exercise physiologists um, are renowned for thinking of the, the brain in the context of exercise as a kind of a black box. It's just up there like doing its thing and we just don't kind of, just kind of look the other way. There's a guy from South Africa named Tim Noakes, um, who uh, is an exercise physiologist. He's done some really cool um, basic exercise physiology stuff, but he's the last few five, ten years maybe of his career, he's dug into um, this idea that really the, the brain and the central nervous system is the governor of exercise performance. He's got some really well thought out, well documented articles that people can find on PubMed, um, on Medline, PubMed.com or scholar.google.com, they'll find these with Tim Timothy Noakes, N-O-A-K-E-S. And there's so much going on there. And so back to the volume idea is like, what does it literally mean to train to failure? And so that's, that is something that you could just sort of like, just, okay, they trained to failure. And then if you look, I'm sure you, I know you've heard this criticism because I've levied it and I've heard it levied by, by probably Lyle McDonald. I know he's probably the one who said it as loudly as anyone. And other people is that if you look at like what happened in Brad's infamous study is like trying to someone trying to carry out that number of sets five sets to 
squats to failure and five sets of Benova rows and five sets of everything to failure with those 90 second rest intervals that they did, that would just basically, that would be a recipe um, for rhabdomyolysis. That would just be, you know, that would be absolutely utter destruction and um, for almost anyone who, who really, really trains hard. So that's not something that could be done for many people. So there's an, there's an, an issue there um, which has been gone into, and that's, you know, we won't, we won't do that aspect of the mental masturbation, but when it comes to what I think you were getting at with, um, with natural trainees um, or people who want to focus on, on those aspects of training is that, yes, it's, it's much easier to say, well, I'll just do more sets. And they know, they know how hard they train. So let's say, let's say literally when they're, when they're doing a set of 10, and Eric Helms, is, this was part of, I think, some of his dissertation research. Is, you know, he, he's, he, and the follow-ups to that, he's found that you know, people will estimate their, their rep maxes. And when you actually um, direct them through and have them carry out a true set to failure, some people will get as many as seven or eight more reps. They'll, you know, they can increase their number of reps by like 50% easily when you really get them to push. And, and personal trainers know this as well. You can have people that you, you go in the gym, and, and Tom Platts would do this um, with people. He's you can see watch him do this. He, he likes. I think it, I think you'd say five more reps. Sometimes people say three more reps. So you have someone carry go to do a set, and they would do twelve reps. And if they were on their own, that'd be it. And if you have a trainer there, they say three more reps. Well, they'll crank out three more reps. And sometimes form breaks down. It's they're really not the reps are not the same at the end. But we have much more left in the tank um, than. Uh, than most people recognize, and there's there is a, sort of an emergency reserve that it's hard to tap into when you're in a gym, you know, with fluorescent colors around you, and you know they're they're playing uh, you know '80s um, you know Madonnas on the on the radio. It's just like that doesn't you know doesn't make you wanna wanna push into that no man's land where you literally you would be an absolute. I mean, it's it's a social. It's almost a social faux pas, I think, for some people to push so hard like that in the gym. It's very rare that you go into a gym, um, in most gyms, and even in a gym that's pretty hardcore. You, you like, there's a gym that I here in town that I just trained at yesterday, and a lot of competitors. But I, but I don't, I don't go in there because I notice this because I've been to some gyms where this is happening, and you can sense like this is a fucking bunch of animals. Like these these people, you don't. You don't get in the way. You don't. You, you walk around. You stay out of their space because that space is sacred. Around that bar, around that machine, there is there is a vibe in there that is just um, unspeakable. And even in gyms where you have a lot of kind of advanced people, you don't see people training that hard. So back to the your overanalyzer scenario is like okay, so you can say, well, what I want you to do is do something that you know I want you to put yourself through absolute agony. I want you to suffer in a way that you've never suffered before. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go through hell in order to get this muscle mass by pushing your sets beyond where you ever pushed them before. You're going to have to go way past your normal comfort zone where you may have two or three reps in reserve, really, if you pushed. And I just, well, we're going to instead, so that's option A, like, you know, go and go and hold a flame to your hand. Um, you know, you're going to do 20, 20, 30 sets in your workout total. You know, those last three or four reps are basically or like two or three reps are like holding a flame to your hand. Where you just the last, you just want to do everything to get your hand out of that fire. That's like literally what that might mean to those people. Whereas I just heard Jordan say this in an interview that I heard. I can't remember which podcast he was on, but like that's the, his favorite part of the day. I know exactly what he means. Like that's what I'm looking for when I go into the set. I'm looking for that. Holy shit! 
Like, you know, I, I just had a conversation with God and, and she told me to get back in there and get some more reps. You know, that's that's kind of where you want to go if if you kind of have some loose screws in your head like, like Jordan and I do and lots of other people. Um, so so there's that option. Or you say, well, you know, you're going to each of your sets will just be as you've done before. We're not going to actually literally ask you to stress yourself too much. You're just going to add volume. And that, that's a much more sane approach. You can just do, just do more sets of what you've already done. Um, and that is, without a doubt, that is a, a, a possible, it's a way to produce overload. Absolutely, 100%. There's no doubt about that. But that's just a much more agreeable, I think, psychologically speaking, a much more agreeable proposition for most people. Um, it's much less animalistic. It's much more logical. It's much easier to quantify. Um, you know, you go in the gym and like, I mean, if you have a crappy day, you definitely don't want to dwell on it. But like, you don't want to write down your logbook. And I've, I've done this before for myself, like, you know, pushed out on the set, you know, some, some, it's the, that's a nice thing. You look back in your logbook. So what I do last time, oh, shit, I only got six reps and I wrote pushed out. That fires you up for the next time, you know. So there's, there, so it's a, a, like literally the um, training harder versus doing more volume with the same level of effort are almost like they're two, it's like almost a dichotomy in terms of, of the, the two different um, possibilities. They're, they're, ver they're, they're, they're di in different quantum realms, literally, for many, many people. Because like one is, requires one mindset and the other requires a different mindset. And it's not, uh, it's not really that, that distinct. You know, we're not talking you know, X's and O's here. But still, I think there's something to say for the notion I think you're bringing forth that, yeah, there's... It's just easier to it's easier scientifically to to, to manipulate the volume in that sense because we don't have to deal with like I mean what happens what do you what what do you do I mean I would love to see this study but like what what do you do if you like let's say you go and you're doing you know progressive overload during the course of your eight ten twelve sixteen week study whatever it may be ideally longer of course but and you get to the end of the study and you've supposedly everyone's taken their sets to failure and then you um, bring the subjects back in, and um, you, you have to. Maybe you could do this with a machine um, that where they can't see the load, um, like a you know a selectorized leg extension or something like that, where they don't know how much weight is on the the pin is lifting, where the pin is at to lift the load, and you just have someone you know take say take your set to failure, um, and then but in this case then you then you have people encourage them. After, you know, to do more reps, like we're going to do kind of a post-post test or something like that. And you find that, holy shit, you know, we were supposedly taking all these sets to failure, but when we go in and we actually um, test them differently, we find that some people, well, they don't get any more reps than we would have expected. It's like we finished, you know, this was about what they were getting at the end of their training. You know, they didn't, maybe they had a little overreach and they got one or two more reps. And there's some people who are like doubling their reps when we actually were yelling and screaming at them. And encouraging them so then then it's like holy crap the our unit of training dose is unknown and that, that was actually that's i've actually created my own segue into this, this thing i was going to talk about in relation to, to training volume so it, it would almost be like you know you you think you were testing the 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 differences between one two and three or two four and six aspirins per day on you know headache or you know some sort of pain related measurement and side effects and instead you find out like holy shit like our aspirins were not they're not dosed the same some of them are 325 milligrams and some of them are like 
just more than a baby aspirin. And they're like, they're all different. We didn't, we don't have a standardized dose in the form of that unit, which we call a set because some people were training literally to failure. And then some people were, weren't, they like literally had many, many reps in reserve. They had tons of reps in the tank. So that's, you won't see that happen because it's just, I mean, that would, that would, that would really, you could shoot your own study in the foot. If you did that, I'd love to see someone do it. You know, there'd be, that would be a really honest scientific approach. Um, ideally, obviously you have the same, you know, people giving the same instructions. You standardize the level of encouragement that you give because that can vary tremendously. That can definitely impact performance and how much, uh, how much your experimenters are they standing there with their, with their lab coat on and they, you know, they've got their, you know, their pencil protector and their lab coat and their clipboard and they're just simply okay uh five four three two one execute your set very good okay we'll have two minutes starting the clock now let's move over to the leg press and they just like if you could be just totally neutral you know like an automaton just basically guiding them from place to place or you could be going bonkers um and trying to get maximal effort totally different scenarios yeah on the failure thing um it's it's cool that people are hearing this from you because I've been actually talking about this very thing a number of times when I did those volume videos that, you know, a lot, I, I'm not someone who is going to get worked up by a study like that. Like, I also don't personally quite understand why Lyle McDonald is so annoyed by this study. I think because like you said, it's not meant to provide practical recommendations. It's just there to show a, a particular dose response relationship. And I've always said that from that perspective, these studies are completely legitimate. But my only sort of criticism or issue with some of the scientists that have been involved with this study and some other content producers and um, researchers who have been discussing this study is that it seems like they don't quite recognize just how important it is to actually clarify whether they truly mean failure when they say failure. Because it's not like it's just something that you can just insert in there. Like, yeah, yeah, so we had this study. It ran for 16 weeks. We had 30 participants. Average age was this and that. And yeah, they were training to failure. It's like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. <laughs> it's like, were they really training to failure? Like to the point where they were shaking under the bar and they would have dumped it onto them if someone didn't help out? Or was it like when they felt like it was getting tough, then they stopped? And it's fine. Like that is also fine. If that meant two reps away from failure or three or four, it's still fine because it still shows that those response relationship, but there's a really, really big difference. And sure, it, does that also mean that for previous studies on volume, that criticism also applies? Sure. Like when it showed that 10 sets was the upper end, it could very well apply to that study as well. And then this study shows that, yes, under those circumstances, doing 45 sets a week could be viable. But if they were actually training to failure, then that would mean that for someone who is not training to failure and only stops, you know, one or two rep away from failure, then like what would be the ideal volume for them like 70 sets you know so mm. these things are very important to clarify and 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 one last thing on this sorry for the long monologue no, no, um no. is that there have been a couple of studies also this year or this past year that have come out and showed negative effects from very high volume Barbalo study uh, yeah yeah that one for example and some of the scientists that have been involved with that study were i think james fisher and Steele. i don't know if both of them were but the studies that have showed negative effects from higher volumes were always involving some of these guys like fisher and Steele, and those are within the hit 
very high intensity, low volume training camp. And that's important because if you look at training sessions that these people conduct, then you will actually see people there that are truly training to failure and that are like shaking under the bar. And that's true concentric failure. And it's I just find it too accidental that the, the studies that these people were involved with actually showed like 20 sets or something or 10 even as the upper limit of training volume. So clarifying that and standardizing that is really, really freaking important if you actually want to demonstrate concrete numbers as the upper limit of training volume. So that would be my rant. <laughs> I, you know, I absolutely agree with you. And as you were, as you were saying that, it was really occurring to me, even perhaps more so than it has in the past, is that quantifying and testing the validity of what is basically kind of a, a unit of, of stress here, the set taken to failure is something that you know a good scientist knows to do from experimental procedural standpoint. Um, literally, you know, you you would like, for instance, like there's all so many examples of this things that 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 the uh, the listeners I'm sure have heard about or know about. But but for instance, if you do like DEXA for body composition, it's kind of well known and it's sort of been the subject of many many studies now. If you look in the DEXA literature, comparing the different manufacturers in terms of the body composition estimates that you get compared to maybe a, a four-component model or a, a MRI or CT or hydrostatic wing or skin folds or whatever it may be. But they'll compare like Lunar and, and Hologic um, or maybe a GE scanner, some of the main scanners, and you find differences that are there. So it, it may, it may and, and the differences or the errors relative to some um, uh, standard measure, whatever your validation criterion might be, can differ depending on the body fat percentage. And I won't go on on this for too long, but you might find that, that one, one DEXA, uh, I'm just making this up now, but one particular DEXA unit will tend to overestimate body fat percentage compared to your standard measurement, whereas the other uh, manufacturers' DEXA will tend to un underestimate. So the error at low percentage of body fats, and you might find the, the opposite to be the, be the case when you go to high levels of body fat. So that, that's like something that, that scientists have like dug into and, and they're well aware of that. Like you can't just compare, you know, say you can't like do a study with mul at multiple centers and use different DEXA units from different manufacturers and presume that you're, you know, you've, you've got, you don't have consistency in your measurement there. Because so across studies, when we're talking about uh, maybe Brad's lab versus the Bar Barhalo lab, those, those folks you just mentioned, um, Barbalo lab, then you've got a, basically a unit of stress here, the unit that's being manipulated as the independent variable, the number of sets taken to failure, um, is not standardized. So it's almost like, I mean, imagine like, let's make it even more kind of concrete and like, you know, head shaking. It's like, imagine if like scales, like you've, people have gone and weighed in. Sometimes I've seen some awful scales when I weighed in for bodybuilding shows, like, like this, you know, it'd be like the, the health ometer scale they got at Walmart like 15 years ago that, you know, weighs you at five pounds less than what you weighed on your home scale. It's like that scale is not right. Well, imagine if the scales, you know, hadn't, hadn't been um, zeroed and, and, and balanced and calibrated. There's a, literally there's kind of a calibration issue here in terms of the stress that's imposed because this is a psychometric type of phenomenon. Like what it really means to train to failure is is something that is just sort of like tossed out there but I mean you can do there are ways in which you you could quantify this and this would be like literally a complete research train um like Jeremy Lenicky is is someone who's who's you know done a magnificent job of really digging in and teasing apart a lot of the blood flow restriction related 
um, uh, literature and what that does in terms of the responses and the adaptation and all sorts of aspects of that training model. Um, so someone could literally probably create, you know, a pretty strong research line looking into like, what is it, how can we actually, you know, provide a, a sort of a validity measure of what it means to train to failure, you know, so we can, we can ensure that that is actually the case. And can you use EMG, for instance, you know, if we, can we track EMG over the course of a set to failure? And, you know, if we find that there is a, an agreement with move bar velocity or angular angular velocity if it's like a knee extension or something like that and emg signal that corroborates that failure rep and we we find that agreement in those three measurements with the person's subjective um uh sense that there's failure and we can apply any type of encouragement or other um psychological uh, strategy to try to get more reps of the person and we can't do so and we still get the corroboration with those physiological measures, like the EMG or the biomechanical measures, like the bar velocity. Then I mean, just I'm making this up really off the top of my head, but those sorts of things could be investigated so that you can now we have a standardized, like literally we put our subjects through the the Smith and Jones um, test for uh, training to failure, and we found on these three lifts of the eight that we used in our training study, they met the criteria, and those were the, the subjects that we included. And we left the rest of them out. They have to do this, for instance, for instance, in um, uh, in when you do swimming studies in rats um, or in mice, a lot of them will just uh, and or actually have a better a better example is treadmill running. So you can do endurance training studies with with rat with rats and mice. And the way they do that, it's not you know not my favorite thing to explain, but they put them on a treadmill with an incline or what have you, and they start them running and they keep them running because if they don't, there's a shock grid at the bottom of the treadmill. It's like the old school way to do it. And some of the some of the rats or some of the rodents just say, screw it, I'd rather be shocked than run. And they'll just like, Zzz. well, those don't get included. They don't obviously, like if, if, the, if the animal doesn't actually run on the treadmill, it's pretty clear that, you know, they don't get included in the subject pool. They don't get, you know, tested for whatever, you know, they're trying to examine as far as an endurance adaptation, speed or velocity or whatever it may be, because they don't, they're non-runners. There's some animals that won't swim. Like if you want to get a, like a swimming test, like, how long will they can they swim around like a, a barrel of water? Some some rodents will just hold their breath and they'll dive bomb. They'll go down to the bottom and they'll bounce back up. Well, that's not what you want. So they get excluded. So you could literally come up with the same sort of um, scenario for excluding people who are um, hard trainers, not so hard trainers. Those who meet the criteria that you've that have been formulated over the course of validation studies to examine you know who who can train to failure and who cannot we want to see the various these various things happening um at least gives us some idea um there is a um a study that i wrote an entire article about it's on elite fts um the name of the the, the uh, article is but this the study it's it's done in the 60s it was published in journal of applied physiology and the um the, the researchers are ikai and steinhaus I-K-A-I and Steinhaus, so maybe a Japanese or German researcher. Anyway, they, they, um, the, 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 the study was something like, entitled something like Psychological Factors That Influence the Expression of Human Muscular Strength. And they did some shit which you literally probably couldn't get a, a human subjects committee to approve these days. They had people do uh, lose an isometric elbow flexion test, so basically a, an isometric curl. 
And they wanted to basically examine various things that would sort of disinhibit, so remove the inhibition of human strength. So they tested them just like with normal, like, okay, sit down in the lab and I want you to pull, let's get your, your max, your maximal voluntary contraction, elbow torque. And then they, uh, then they had them, they intoxicated them with alcohol. They gave them amphetamines. Um, they screamed at them, like literally, ah! like just scared the shit out of them. They had a, uh, a starter pistol, like you'd use, you know, to start off a 100 meter dash, a gun with a, a loud bang, and they shot that off unexpectedly next to their ears, and they actually hypnotized them. And uh, they found to varying degrees that all of these things enhanced the strength expression. And I mean, the coolest thing about this, and this is published in Journal of Applied Physiology, which is a highly regarded journal. Um, and they took one of the, one of the uh, people that they tested was, was like a world-class weightlifter, I think they call it something like that, someone who was fairly highly trained and he had the highest strength values, et cetera, et cetera. And he wasn't very impacted um, by these uh, interventions of screaming and the alcohol, et cetera, because presumably he had learned how to disinhibit over the course of, of years of training. Or maybe he was just naturally inclined that way, and that's why he became a, a weight trainer or a weightlifter, as they called him. And they hypnotized him, um, and he got a greater expression of strength. And they actually took, and they documented this, um, they took, the hypnotist took, so, they took someone who they thought was the least inclined to be hypnotized. I think I'm getting this right. And they, this is document. this is literally, I could pull up the study and read it to exactly what it says in the method section. But in order to document that their hypnosis was effective, they told this person who was hypnotized under the hypnosis, under the influence of hypnosis, so to speak, that the hypnotist is now going to touch a hot poker to your hand but he will heal up in the next couple of days. So here it goes. And he took the backside of a pen, maybe the rubber eraser on a pencil, and touched that to the guy's hand. But under hypnosis, he thought it was a hot poker. And his hand blistered. At least that's what it says in the method section. So I know of absolutely no physiological mechanisms that would create a blister without the actual cellular disruption that would come from the heat. Like there was no... like. It's like saying we're going to cut your hand now and you just like make a motion with the knife and all of a sudden there's a there's a cut in the hand like he just touched a pen to him and the guy got a blister there was no hot poker so that's like pretty good that's the that's in scientific literature i know that's pretty woo woo but if you look at the basic findings of that study there's all sorts of things that are involved there which will dictate strength and how hard we can push um under the duress of extreme exercise and that is, you know, it's from a scientific perspective, I think it's, you know, it's, it's good science to now that we've seen the things like the discrepancy, for instance, between um, what you see in, in Brad's most recent study with the 45 sets versus like the Barbalo study. There's the more recent one that came out with, with men where they use the term ceiling effect in their, um, uh, in their title. And it was like basically five sets actually seemed to be the best over the long haul five or 10 sets per week. If you look at most of the, um, mo the plots for most of the muscles that they examine the size of. So that's a gigantic range. Something's going on there. Like, so what I, what I wanted to, the only, I bet I try, probably triggered some thoughts. Have you got anything to say to that? Cause I've, I've got a, a little, um, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. So, so the thing, and, and you brought it up with the, um, with the Barbalo studies is that really we've got, we've got a stress here and you can think of exercise as a hormetic stress we don't typically do this but um 
So are you familiar with that term hormesis? Yeah, it's it's uh, when your body is adapting to a stress and kind of like the the hormetic the, the notion of hormetic stress is that there's an inverted U dose response curve. So for a particular a smaller amount of the stress, you will get a given like well, let's say a positive adaptation, and um, so that's a good thing. And then you it, at some point there'll be an optimal amount of stress for evoking the largest adaptation. And then when you have more and more of that stress, um, then you end up having a negative adaptation. And you can actually have a maladaptation too, where you, in this case, it would be akin to overtraining. So um, you can give like small, vitamin C is good in small amounts. There's an optimal amount of vitamin C and then too much. Um, well, that actually counters, this is all connected to hormesis, in particular hormesis stress. Here, here's, a, here's a bad example. People may, may not know this, but you can give you can actually give small amounts of radiation that will increase the cellular ability to withstand further radiation doses. It increases the ability to detoxify from radiation. So um, people talk about about snake bites. People who will sort of inoculate themselves to snake bites by using snake venom. Obviously, if you just like went all out and you know went in for a full bite right off the get go, you could end up dying depending on the venom and the snake. But smaller amounts will sort of create an inoculation effect. So there's this, this notion of hermesis is that there's an inverted U, a, a, there, there's an optimal amount, there's a, a less than optimal amount, and then if you go too far, you can have less than optimal amounts and even amounts that will cause a maladaptation. So uh, reduce your ability to withstand the stress. And so volume is sort of like, um, it's the dose that you get. Um, of exercise. And if you look at those Barbalo studies, you see a hormetic-like dose response curve. That's an inverted U. So like in the in the men's study, and it's too bad you, we don't have video, you could throw up these, these plots, maybe um, you could send the links, you can, I don't know if I, I have the Barbalo study, but I don't know if you can get it, I'm not sure how I got it. I have a, a, pre, uh, a pre-publication manuscripts. I'm I'm not sure where I came up with it, but I found it someplace. But um, the plots in there aren't great. They've got these weird plots in those that, that don't, you can see them, but you have to magnify them quite a bit. And you see that of like five or, or 10 sets and about 10 sets seems to be the, the sweet spot in the women's study is where you're getting the best adaptation. And then beyond that, you're not getting as much muscle growth. And in the men's study, the cool thing that they did is they measured muscle growth over the course of the study. It was several months long. I think they have like three measurements, a, a pre and then um, two middle and a post measurement. And you can see that there's also, there's an effect of, of, of time as well. So you're getting some growth from the first to the second measurement. And then over the course of time, there's a regression. So that's something that we don't often take into account. That's sort of a, a very important side note here is that what you see in the snapshot of an eight-week study in terms of adaptation to the training doesn't mean that that is necessarily going to continue for the next eight weeks. It may have been that that's basically what what um, uh, maybe maybe Mike Isertel would call the max recoverable volume. I don't want to interpret you know his terminology for that eight week period. But if you tried to do that for sixteen weeks, you would that would be too much. You have to have a deload in there of some sort. Um, so the volume of sets is like the dose, like the milligrams that you have, but. Resistance exercises, various kinds of drugs that you can give, so to speak, in order to dose this adaptation that we seek in terms of, of, of hypertrophy. You can do heavy training. You can do light load training. You can do um, 
you can do training that is of high effort. So you can think of sort of, if you look at an individual set, you can actually say, what was the potency of that set? And that's what we've been talking about in training to failure or tr really training to failure. So a highly potent set would be one where someone trains to absolute failure and they really train to failure. Like you held a gun to their head as they really literally did in the study that Kai and Steinhaus it wasn't a real gun. They weren't going to shoot him, but it was a, it was a starter pistol that <laughs> scared the bejesus out of them. Um, there's no more reps coming. That's a highly potent set. So you could look at the extent of effort as related to the potency. So if you take, let's say your, your dose is a set or so your, your drug is, is aspirin. You could have a baby aspirin, which is maybe like a wimpy set or a warm up set it really doesn't do much. Um, or maybe it's a set where you have lots of reps in reserve. And like, yeah, if you take, you know, you have to do like 10 baby aspirin to get what you get out of uh, just three regular aspirin. So 10, you know, easy sets could kind of make up for, um, you know, the lack of effort, so to speak, because you've basically taken in enough of the drug of exercise, so to speak, dose yourself up with multiple sets, but with minimal effort. Um, it's not quite as simple as that, but I'm trying to sort of build this sort of paradigm. So the potency too is a function of the mind-muscle connection. So, you know, we've got, and, if, and um, I'm not a pharmacologist, but literally you're providing the stress to the entire body, but you want to bring that stress to the muscle that you're trying to evoke the growth out of. So you, you want to direct, let's say if you're, um, let's say if you're taking the aspirin for muscle soreness, you'd want ideally that aspirin to be directed towards the muscle. If you're taking the, the aspirin for a headache, that's where you want the aspirin to go. So the extent to which you're dosing um, the body as a bodybuilder, i.e. you're training the muscle that you're trying to make grow rather than just the entire muscle or, or the muscles that are involved, accessory muscles or whatever else, muscles that maybe shouldn't be involved. You're throwing your back into a biceps curl, for instance. Um, that is not dosing. That's, that's not a more potent stimulus necessarily for the muscle because you're using sloppy form, you've got a poor mind-muscle mind connection. You can also make sets more potent, potentially, or sort of change the nature of them, um, maybe almost as compared, now we're talking about comparing non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, we're comparing um, naproxen or ibuprofen or aspirin or acetaminophen, which really isn't even a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory we're talking about. We can sort of change things if you start adding intensification techniques, doing drop sets, doing cluster sets, um, those sorts of things. Um, and then you've got the overlapping effect. And then you can go on all the other variables that are talked about. But the basic idea is that you've got a, a dose, which is the number of sets, and you've got potency. So if you just take 10 aspirin, you have to ask yourself, were those 10 baby aspirin or those 10 full dose aspirin? And and were those aspirin um, aspirin that, that went right to the muscle? Or did I just dose myself with a bunch of the drug that's going to cut it cut in my recovery abilities? So the hypertrophy drugs, so to speak, come about, you can also sort of see them in terms of specificity of training. High loads give you greater strength. And we know, and there are data out there, people sort of, there's, there's several good studies. The best one is probably with, with rugby um, uh, players who increased squat strength over like a year or two of training. And the, their correlation I think was like 0.8 between the increase in squat strength and increase in fat-free mass in these rugby trainers who are doing weight training to increase muscle mass for rugby. There's some, there are some other studies showing decent correlations between getting stronger and gaining muscle size. And high load training gives you greater muscle strength. So that's a little bit, 
that's a little bit different in terms of an hypertrophy drug in the form of a high load set. The low load sets are going to give you more of a muscular endurance effect. One of the things I asked Brad in that in that podcast that we had him on for was if anyone, because of course you presume you know progressive overload is being applied in these studies. So you literally have performance measurements over the course of these studies with these trainees that are doing the low load training and the high load training. So you can say a, a, an obvious question for me to ask would be like, so did the guys who got the strongest in the high load training get the biggest? Did they get the greatest strength gains? And um, and also in the so and we've, and we've seen that in other studies that have looked at that in particular. But what about the low load? So if you're doing like sets of 25 to 35 or what have you, 20 to 30, do you see that the people who increase the load the most in those high rep sets, so their performance goes up the most, are those the ones who get the most muscle growth as well? So does loading during low load training or the, or the progressive increase in load during the low load training predict um, muscle growth? So those are some sort of other, other features. And, and there's, more, there's more to it, but I'll, I'll let, you, let you interject. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, then please, once again, consider dropping a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it would be truly helpful. And if you're interested in more cool stuff, then you could visit my YouTube channel. If you type in Sustainable Self-Development Podcast there or even SSD Podcast, it will come up. And if you're interested in working together with me, then you can check out the Calendly link in the show description. There you can book a free call with me. We can hop on that call, chat about your goals, challenges, determine if we are a good fit. And if that is the case, then we could be working together going forward to get you to the results that you want. So that's all I had to say for today. I hope you enjoyed this once again. And with that, see you next time.